Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Hey, we're going to want to be down there tonight. They're having fun. Let's go to Colossians chapter 2. And tonight we're going to talk about the cross is God's victory. The cross is God's victory. And uh, we've been talking about the cross uh, and its different dimensions, the different dimensions of the cross. Um, The cross is God's love. The cross is God's justice. Um, And off the top of my head now, I can't remember, but we've done at least four of them. Uh, the cross as his sacrifice and um, suffering. That's it. Suffering. And what was the other one, Susie? Do you remember? All right. Hey, if you take a good notes, you can keep the pastor straight. Okay. Suffering love. I know we talked about his justice. Tonight we'll talk about uh, the cross as God's victory. Who does God? Uh, who is God fighting against? If there's, uh, if we're talking about victory, we're talking about um, defeating some kind of foe or some kind of enemy. Who is the who's the enemy of God? Hmm? Satan's the enemy of God. Satan and his angels, right? And uh, there are places in Scripture that talk about fallen humanity being. Uh, enemies of God, but he's trying to extend his love so that that enemy can become a friend. Um, so there's a couple different uh, pitfalls that we can fall into when it comes to talking about the devil. I think that if we're going to be scriptural Christians, we're going to believe in uh, a personal evil that is opposed to God, and uh, it's uh, it's Satan and and his angels. And from scripture. Uh, we should know that Satan is not an equal to God, okay? We need to know that. He's not an equal to God, and in fact, uh, God didn't create Satan as an evil uh, opposition to himself, but uh, if if I understand Scripture correctly, uh, God created Satan as an angel. He was originally an angel, uh, some kind of angel that was to serve the purpose of giving glory to God, but in his pride, uh, he was lifted up and uh, tried to usurp God's place, and was cast down. And uh, it talks about, in Scripture, a third of the angels falling with him. I have a theory on this. I'm going to share it, but I want you to know, if you're taking notes, put, this is pastor's theory. This isn't the Bible, okay? So uh, the Bible says, talks about uh, three angels, okay? Three different angels that are really distinct. What's a couple of the other angels that we know of? Gabriel, and what's he primarily known for? A messenger, right? Yep. How about Michael? What's he known for? War. He's, he's a warring angel, okay? And then we don't know uh, the enemy's name. Lucifer is not the enemy's name. I don't know if you knew that or not, but uh, Lucifer is a, is a borrowing. It's a title that he tried to usurp from the morning star, who is Jesus himself. And so... Uh, we don't know what the enemy's name is, to be honest with you. But here's my theory, and uh, you can shoot it down if you like. And 
I'm not going to win any awards for this, but uh, I think that when it says a third of the angels fell, it seems that we know two other angels. And what I think has happened in heaven, uh, there are three archangels, is my understanding. It would have been whatever Satan was, and then Michael and Gabriel. And I think each of them had a third of the angels under them. It's a theory. And that so when Satan fell, he took those that were under his authority with him. And so that keeps two-thirds of the angels uh, in allegiance to God. So uh, you can chew on that, and it's not the Bible. Don't get dogmatic about it if you, if you like it. It just fits neatly, but here's the thing that I find really interesting about reality is it doesn't always fit neatly. If somebody, um, uh, and G.K. Chesterton talks about this, if a mathematician from some other planet, if there were ex- uh, aliens exist in other, came to Earth, and they looked at our bodies, and they saw uh, an arm on the right and an arm on the left, and a leg on the right and a leg on the left. They knew we had two eyes and two ears, and if they knew that we had two sides to our lungs, two kidneys, they would expect if they found a heart on the left also to find a heart on the right. But there's not, is there? I don't know anybody here has two hearts. If you do, you better love doubly. <laughs> But isn't that kind of surprising? So many things are just you expect it to be this way. It's not quite that way. And so whatever the theory is on the angels, uh, the thing that I really think we need to understand from Scripture is that Satan, uh, in his original state, the Satan, was created good and fell. God does not create evil. Okay? So he was created good. He fell. And, of course, he wants to destroy uh, God's creation. And there's a message, watch out for Internet scams, okay? <laughs> um, and, and so that made him uh, the enemy of God. And it seems to me in the fall of the enemy that they have a one-strike-you're-out policy. We have grace. I mean, how many times have we sinned and God still gives us another chance to be restored? But not so with the angels. One strike, you're out, and Satan has set himself against God. There's a couple things that we can fall into when it comes to the devil or uh, to demons, his his horde. And one is uh, error is to ignore them altogether and act like they don't exist. Okay, that's dangerous because it ignores the fact that there's a real enemy. It also ignores the fact that we live in a battlefield. This world, even after we've come to Christ, is not heaven. Do you understand what I mean by that? We, we hear about he- days of heaven on earth. Yes, that's figurative. This is not heaven. And we're in a battle, even now. Uh, and so it's not wise to ignore the fact that we're in a battle. Okay. On the other side of it, we can give too much attention to the enemy, where he becomes the focus of all of our attention. We're always worried about how the devil's trying to trip us up and have you ever seen those, um, and I don't even know what they're called, but they're kind of a picture with words. The more you use the word, the bigger it is in the picture, and it puts all the words around it that you, that a person uses. Anybody, what are those called? Anybody know? Okay. Well, maybe you can Google it later. Uh, if we looked at one of those in some Christian's vocabulary, you might see the devil as a bigger word than God. That's true. Uh, I know many years ago at one of the churches, we were at, uh, there was a guest evangelist, and before the service, we we're all praying, and I, I tell you, I think he talked to the devil more than he talked to God, and I think that's wrong. 
I don't think we need to talk to the devil too much. I think we need to be careful about how much we talk to the devil. And if you need a verse for that, uh, it's in um, it's in Jude. Now it escapes me at the moment. But it talks about even the archangel Michael when he's worrying over the body of Moses, dared not bring a... Uh, dared not bring a railing accusation, but simply said, the Lord rebuke you. He didn't spend time, the warring angel himself didn't spend time talking to the devil. He just rebuked him. The Lord rebuke you. So we don't, we don't need to run around talking to the devil all the time. If you need to rebuke the devil, get done with the business and get out. Get on with other focus because it's far better. There's another uh, couple of ditches that we can fall into in regards to the devil's one is to fear, okay? And that's where we walk around in dread terror of what the devil is going to do. And the other is to underestimate him. I think that we don't need to fear the devil, but I think we need to respect him, okay? Uh, so don't get up like one person did in the middle of church service and said, bring it on, devil, I'm ready for you. Don't do that, okay? Yeah, he's a serious contender, and he's wiser than we are. And if we didn't have our big brother Jesus on our side, he would beat us, but thank the Lord, he's on our side. Christ is, and so we don't have to be defeated. Satan has uh, present power and influence. Uh, he's called the God of this world uh, because the majority of the world is under his influence. If you want some scriptures for that, let me mention these real quick if you would like to write them down. Second Corinthians 4.4, 4. the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. John 12.31, Ephesians 2, 2, and 1 John 5, 19. That's 2 Corinthians 4, 4, John 12, 31, Ephesians 2, 2, and 1 John 5, 19. Okay, the reason that, um, the reason that this has happened, that the enemy is known as the God of this world, is because humanity surrendered their proper place as stewards of God's creation. So when God created, what did he what did he do with humanity after he made them in his image? Okay, bless them. What what was gave them power, gave them dominion. Uh Adam goes about naming the animals. It's like God is saying, You're the crown jewel of my creation here, and I'm giving you stewardship over all of this. Okay. So when after that's happened. Uh, he's he's warned them not to eat from the fruit of a certain tree. And then the enemy comes in and takes on the form of a serpent and tempts Eve. And it, as they eat of the fruit, it's like they've given over their power to the enemy. Okay, so at that point, uh, Satan takes up kind of a place of usurped stewardship. Okay, I don't think he has proper legal right. Uh, some people think he does. I, I don't think that. But I think what he's done is, since humanity is not serving God, he's used his influence to control the the uh, the world. Okay, so he does that as he uh, leads and guides uh, fallen humanity. And so, because humanity surrendered the power and uh, their proper place as stewards of God's creation, Satan has power and is, uh, in one sense, the god of this world. Now. Uh, I've heard some teaching that say things like God can't come in unless he comes through humanity. I don't think that's true because we see places in the Old Testament where nobody's on God's side and he still acts. He still acts. So 
Uh, and the Bible still says, even in the Old Testament, before Christ is conquered through the cross, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So he still owns it. He's still got the title to it. Okay? It's just that fallen humanity has taken all of their power and thrown it in the enemy's side and acted on his behalf. And so, uh, in the sense of the God of this world, it's not that Satan is Lord over all material things. Satan is Lord over those who follow his leadership, which is everybody before the cross, before they come to Christ. Okay? So God in heaven has not lost, and all things rightfully belong to him. And so when he came into the world in Christ, you know, the Son of God comes into the world, uh, he came to destroy the works of the devil. Uh, there's some verses related to that. Let me point out 1 John 3, 8, uh, Acts 10, 38. Okay, and that one we know that Jesus went about anointed by the Holy Spirit, doing good and destroying all the works of the devil. Uh, uh, Hebrews 2, 14. Okay, so one of the purposes of the cross was to redeem a people and to bring them out from under the control of the enemy and in God's, into God's kingdom. So there's a passage, I think the parallel passage from what we're looking at tonight is, is found in uh, Ephesians. And it talks about you used to be under the dominion of darkness. What is a dominion? Okay, it's a it's a territory of authority. Okay, so it's a certain a kind of authority. Um, what is a kingdom? Would anybody say that that's kind of like a synonym for a dominion? Okay, so it says he brought you out from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the Son He loves. So it's out from under one uh, rule and leadership into another kind of rule and leadership. That's that was God's goal in the cross is to redeem us back. So. Uh, one aspect of the the atonement, what Christ accomplished on the cross, is that all of God's wrath that was focused on fallen humanity was placed on Jesus. Here's the other side of that, is that all of the uh, enemy's uh, ferocity that was focused on humanity was focused on Jesus. And in some way, God redeemed us and he purchased us back. There's a couple theories of the atonement that kind of predominate. One is... Uh, substitutionary atonement. That's where we believe that Christ came and he took our place on the cross. And because he stood in our place, we don't bear the wrath of God for our sins. Christ, Christ bore that wrath for us. Okay. Uh, and we're all grateful for that, aren't we? But the other side of it is, is that it's in ransom theory. Uh, it, it believes the belief is that when Christ paid the price, he bought us back from our enslavement to the devil. Okay, I don't know if you thought about this, but Satan probably said to God, I have, because they've violated the law, I have a right to oppress them. I have a right to their lives because they've they failed you. And probably in justice, God allowed him to do that. But when we're bought back, that is broken. We've been purchased. We're no longer our own. We don't belong to the enemy anymore. We belong to God, right? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And you're not Satan's anymore. You've been bought with a price. You belong to God. Okay? So you're under his, you're, you're under his uh, title deed. He has a title deed to our lives. All right. So as we think about all of this, I uh, want to come to a passage that talks about God's victory. 
And it's found here in Colossians chapter 2. We'll look at verse 13 and following. But before we do that, let's talk about the background for why Paul is writing to the Colossians. Uh, My understanding is that at the writing of Colossians, Paul hasn't been to Colossae. It was Epaphras, uh, one of Paul's companions, that that won people won, that won people and established a church in Colossae. But Paul is concerned about them. He's hearing about some of the things they're going through. He's got a really good friend uh, from there, uh, Philemon, and so he's writing this letter. And as he does that, um, there's some things that have developed there that he addresses. We don't know what this uh, thing looks like, this belief system exactly looks like, but there's some hints that we find through the letter. And one of them, one of the things that's being taught is some kind of uh, teaching that detracts from the person of Christ. It takes away from the greatness of who Christ is. And so Paul is addressing that, and he talks about how in him dwelt the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He wants to make sure we understand that there's nothing lacking in Jesus, nothing. Okay, uh, We don't need to put together some kind of conglomerate uh, uh, supernatural network in order to get things from God. We have all we need in Jesus. You understand that? We have all we need in Jesus. We don't need Jesus plus all the angels and plus all of this, and which is really key to this uh, book. Um, we just, we need Jesus. The second thing that he's dealing with here is this emphasis on keeping Jewish customs and holidays for some kind of spiritual merit. Hey, I don't know exactly what this looks like, but whatever these teachers have come in, they're emphasizing that you've got to follow the fast and you've got to follow the keeping of the Jewish holidays. And so they're emphasizing that, that if you do that, you'll be better with God. And Paul is saying, no, don't let anybody judge you in what you eat or what you drink or in keeping of the holy days. Don't let anybody judge you in that. You don't have to follow those customs anymore. All of the customs are full in Christ. He fulfilled all of those. And if we have Jesus, we have all of the customs fulfilled. Do you understand what I mean by that? We don't have to be circumcised. We don't have to follow all the Jewish rituals. We don't have to, we don't have to do the 613 different laws. We don't have to follow the sacrificial system. All of that is in Christ. And if you have Christ, you have it all. So you're supplied, right? It's that all-inclusive payment that's been given to us. It talks about that in chapter 2, uh, verse 11, 16, chapter 3, uh, verse 1. Excuse me, chapter 3, verse 11. And then uh, it appears in chapter 2, verse 18, that there's some kind of idea of mediatorial angels, hierarchy of angels, that you have to go from low angel to higher angel, and then finally through Jesus, and finally to the Father. Uh, I don't understand all of this, but uh, this is what the Bible scholars are telling us, is that they've, they had some kind of custom, and there's some of this in Judaism as well, that there's a belief that you have to move through a hierarchy of angels and actually, to actually get to uh, the Father. And this is in Catholicism too, isn't it? That you've got to go through certain saints in order to get, and, uh, to get to the Father. And what the New Testament teaches us is that we don't need all those mediaries. We've got one mediator between God and man, that's Jesus. We don't have to go through a priest. Now, if you want to go to somebody and confess your sins, that's one thing. But to have to go through a priest in order to get to God, uh, I think, really misses the point. 
So Paul is teaching about this a little bit here. There's a, uh, we don't need this hierarchy of angels. Some of this may have come over from their paganism that they felt like there were the gods and then there were some lower beings that were demigods that kind of controlled the day-to-day stuff. And so they had amulets and uh, different incantations in order to protect themselves. And they had to do the, all of these rituals and make sure the demigods are pleased and so they can please the gods and then their life will go well. And what Paul is saying is forget all of that stuff. You've got all you need in Jesus. Are you with me? Sometimes we make Christianity a lot more complicated than it needs to be and add all of these little things. And uh, I want to tell you, if you've got Jesus, you got it all. In Jesus, you have all that you need for spiritual success. And you understand when I say in Jesus, I mean when you have Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. Okay? And then there's the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that comes as Jesus baptizes us. But that's all available to us through Jesus. Um, there seems to be some kind of elementary teaching that emphasizes the material. And so Paul addresses that in chapter 2, verse 21, when he says uh, the elementary forces of the world that uh, you follow their rules, touch not, taste not, handle not. And this seems to have to do with some kind of a um, sacramental view of material things. And uh, I don't want to spend too much time talking about that uh, because I don't see an immediate application at the moment. But And then there's a last part that there, there might be this radical division in nature that some things belong to God and other things belong to the devil. Um, Colossians 1, 20, 28, uh, 3, 11. And what uh, Paul seems to be saying here is all of this is summed up in Christ and everything belongs to Christ. Okay, Let me give you an example of that before we really get into this. Uh, There used to be a time in the church when it was believed that a piano shouldn't be played in worship because that was a bar instrument. Did you know that? And uh, so after a period of time, people pressed through and the piano became adopted as a church instrument. And then the guitar came on the scene. It was like, oh, that's used in rock music. Can't use that in the church because that's the devil's instrument. Before the piano was the devil's instrument, now that's found real religious uh, standing. And now we're casting off guitars because those are devil's instruments. And the fact of the matter is, all a guitar is is an instrument that can be used for good or evil. The whole world belongs to God. A whole world is, for the most part, it's neutral that can be used in a good way or a bad way. Are you with me? (laughs) Even the devil is God's devil. Luther said that. Even the devil is God's devil. He doesn't do what God wants him to do all the time, but uh, he will have to answer to God. So there's some kind of division here, and so there are uh, teachers that have come into Colossae saying, don't touch that. That's evil. Well, uh, whether it's a food or whatever, it's not evil. It becomes evil in the way we use it. If we use it in a way that's evil, then it's then it's the heart of man and it's the use that's evil. You understand what I mean by that? So these were some of the things Paul's trying to address. And as he does, he comes into chapter um, chapter 2 here, and he starts to talk about what we were and, and describe some of the victory that came to us through the cross. He's, he's pushing towards what the new life means in Christ. And then he's specifically focusing on how the new life is accomplished for us. 
And so as he comes into chapter 2 and verse 13, he says, When you were, you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our indebtedness, our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is really good stuff. This is deep stuff. It's liberating stuff if we, if we grab a hold of it and understand what it's saying. So the first thing I want to point out here is, in terms of our victory, is it's victory over death. Christ's victory on the cross is victory over death. Okay, you can see that in the fact that, first of all, uh, when Christ died, his disciples thought that's the end of hope, right? But Jesus on the third day rose again. And in fact, uh, even one of the signs that Jesus gave, we talked about this a few weeks ago. He, he said, I'm not going to give you any sign except for that of, of Jonah. You know, three days in, three days out, and, and then out, and alive again. And so he, he points to that, the death uh, of Christ was not the end of Christ, that he overcame death and was raised to life. And and I believe that what Christ now is, is the prototype for our resurrected bodies. So he was raised to life, and he's the prototype for what we will be. We know that because the Bible says we don't, it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that we shall be like him because we'll see him as he is. Christ was raised in a transformed spiritual body. It was physical, had a physical nature. It wasn't just spirit. It was some kind of trans-physical body that we will be like when we're raised from the dead. And I find incredible hope in that, that we've already seen the prototype in Christ. So we're not just going to move on up. You know, we're not just going up into the spirit of the sky. It's going to be more than that. When we, when we uh, pass from this life, if Jesus doesn't come back before we die, then we're going to go to heaven, and at some point at the, the resurrection, we're going to be raised with new bodies. Not just raised in spirit, not just playing harps on clouds, real bodies. So Christ accomplished that for us, but he also accomplished something else for us. Notice here it says, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ when you were dead. So... This is talking about a spiritual kind of death, right? When you were dead. I mean, the people Paul is writing to are uh, breathing. They're still breathing. Okay? And he's saying, you once were dead. When was I dead? Well, you died when you sinned. You spiritually died. You were dead on the inside. Your spirit was dead when you sinned, right? So think about this going back to the... Uh, Let that guy get that out of the way. Think about going back to the Garden of Eden. What did God say to Adam and Eve, if you eat of this tree? You'll, sh- you'll surely die, right? Okay. They ate from the fruit, and uh, did they physically die at that moment? I wonder if they thought, well, what God said wasn't, wasn't true. He didn't really, we didn't really die. I wonder if they thought that. But the fact of the matter is that at that moment when they disobeyed God, when they, I think when they moved into unbelief of God, their spirit died at that moment, even though their flesh lived on. And spiritual death eventually leads to physical death. 
So Paul is addressing them in their and us in our previous state that God didn't wait till we got all right and got saved and got ourselves cleaned up. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He moved prior to that. But I'd like you to notice here, uh, he made us alive with Christ. So how many words is that? If you have your, if you're in the NIV, made us alive with Christ. How many words is that there? Hmm? Made us alive with Christ. Five words, right? Okay, made us alive with is one word in Greek, and I would spell it out for you, but it'd take a little bit of time here, but uh, it's a word that means to make alive together with someone, to cause to live together uh, with others. We're not made alive uh, just by Christ, we're made alive with him, and I think this has to do with our relational standing with Christ, is that in if uh, anyone is in Christ, they have life. He who has the Son has life. He who has not the Son has not life, right? So life comes with Jesus. And he's talking here about spiritual life. The, there's two words for life in the Bible, and one of them tends to be this one. Bios, that's a Greek word for life, and that typically means like you're your material existence, and your story, okay? And then there's another word, and that's Zoe. And that word tends to relate to a spiritual kind of life. And that's what he's talking about here is uh, if anyone has the Son, then they have life. And he says it here uh, that we were made alive with Christ. We're made alive with Christ, so... Um, our salvation, our eternal life, our present spiritual life that happens now, uh, eternal life is not just the future, okay? I think uh, probably the KJV uh, has misled us a little bit when it says everlasting life, okay? Uh, everlasting life tends to mean it's going to go on into the future forever, and that's true. That's true. It does do that, but when it says, when it's translated eternal life, it more clearly captures what we have right now. We have life that is without end, but it's a life that exists here and now. It's not just projected into the future. That's true, but it's all of that that's ours now. Understand that when you come to Christ, you're born again, and there is life at that moment right then. And that's our life in Christ. Um, Some other translations of this, uh, KJV says, we're quickened together. Um, Weymouth's translation says, we're given life with himself, Christ. And then the Revised English Bible, he brought you to life with Christ. And the subject of that verb, he, is God, God the Father. That's who's being referred to there. And then he forgave us of all of our sins. Notice uh, it says at the last part of verse 13, he forgave us all of our sins. And that really brings us into this this new uh, section here, and that's this, that we have victory over sin. Victory over sin. Christ has given us victory over sin. 13b through 14. Okay, he forgave us of all of our sins, having canceled the charge of legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. 
Okay, so here there's victory over sin, not only victory over death, and that uh, you can find a lot of passages on. We won't take a lot of time for that, but uh, he's given us victory over death. He's given us victory also over sin. And I think if we really got a hold of this, um, these truths, it's going to liberate us. I think it will. I don't. I think we'll find that we're no longer under its bondage. We don't have to fear the specter of past sins anymore. We've been forgiven of how much of our sins? All of our sins. How much is it? It's all of our sins. He forgave us all our sins. He forgave us all our sins. This is, um, when it says forgave here, it means to be gracious because of his nature that he's he's passed on grace and he's He's given us um, He's given us grace because of what He's done. Notice um, having canceled, having canceled the charge of legal indebtedness against us. Having canceled uh, here, canceled means uh, something like to wipe out or erase, to remove in a way that leaves no trace. Uh, Loanita's dictionary here says the figurative meaning is to wipe off, to wipe away, to cause something to cease by obliterating any evidence of it. The blotting out of a written record. KJV has blotting out. Uh, New Revised Standard Version has erasing. He erase, uh, he's erasing our sins, uh, erasing the code that was written against us. New Jerusalem Bible, he, he's wiped out. New English Translation, he's destroyed. And so if you can picture uh, maybe some kind of graffiti on a wall and somebody coming in and scrubbing that away, that's what Christ has done with the the written code that's written against us. And what does the Old Testament Scripture say? Um, He says in the book of Psalms, I think it is, that he will cast uh, our sin as far as the east is from the west and he'll remember them no more. Right? He, he blots out our sins. He wipes away our sins. He covers our sins. These are all part of what he's accomplished in the cross. He canceled to wipe out, to erase, to remove, as to leave no trace our sins. What's the charge of legal indebtedness? Okay, so he says here, this is kind of a mouthful, but uh, says he's canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. Um, this is actually a handwritten document. The word that's used here for the charge is a handwritten document, uh, specifically a certificate of indebtedness, some kind of account or record of debts. Um, sometimes this word's used for financial accounts. So if you think about that uh, in terms of uh, debts and um, What's on the other side of that? Um, um, What is it? Credits and debts, right? Okay. Uh, He's taken care of uh, our debts, and he's crossed those off, or he's made them where they're not recognizable anymore. This isn't God um, hiding over sin. He's paid for it. This is how he did it. Okay? So this isn't God saying, well, that's no big deal, and he just kind of erases it. No, what has happened is, Christ paid for it, and so he said that's been taken care of, and so he marks it off. He marks off the sin that uh, stood against us. The uh, NIV of 84 has the written code, okay? Um, KJV has handwritten, handwriting of ordinances. 
which suggests that what Christ canceled out is um, the rules. That's not what he canceled out. What he canceled out is uh, the ledger that shows where we broke the rules. Okay, that's what he's canceled. Aren't you glad for that? And then uh, New Jerusalem Bible has he's white. He's uh, oh, excuse me. The SV has the record of debts. New English translation certificate of indebtedness. Good news Bible um, unfavorable record of debts. And so then the next part of that is the the legal form of it is these formalized set of rules that we violated. And so it's best just to take all this together. Essentially, it means the record of our law breaking and. Um, He's taken all of that and he's canceled it. He's crossed it out. He's erased it. And he did so. And it stood against us, sorry, condemning us. Notice it stood against us and condemns us. That means it stood contrary and it was hostile to us. Um, We should be condemned because of that record. But instead, Christ took our condemnation and so we don't have to. But it stood against us, and had it remained intact, uh, we would have to answer for that, and we would all deserve what we got. You agree with that? What's that? It is. If that record of indebtedness stood intact, then God, God is just in sending us away from him for eternity. And so we, sometimes I hear people say, it's not right that God sends people to hell. Well, you could ask the question, is God the one sending them to hell? And is it his desire for anybody to go there? It's not. He doesn't desire for any to perish, and he's provided a way that no one has to. And what he's done is erased, canceled the legal indebtedness that we owed to him that we owed to justice because of our sin. He said he took it away. This is, uh, he removed. Look at what it says there in the last part of verse 14. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Okay, he's taken it away. He set it aside. He's removed it. Uh, one uh, way to translate this word, taken away, is that he's lifted up and he's carried it off. Okay, and he did that in Jesus. ESV says he set it aside Weymouth, he cleared it out of the way. Uh, Good News Bible, he did away with it completely. The code of writing that was written against us. The written record of our violations of wrong. He took it away. um, Nailing it to the cross. I like Philip's translation. Listen to how he says this. He's forgiven you all of your sins. Christ has utterly wiped out the damning evidence of broken laws and commandments, which always hung over our heads. And has completely annulled it by nailing it over his own head on the cross. And then having, uh, goes on to the next part that we'll talk about in just a moment. But he nailed it to the cross. And the image here comes from the notice that's fastened to the cross by the Roman authorities. Do you remember when Jesus uh, was hung on the cross, a group of religious guys came and said, you need to put this over Jesus' head. A pilot just said, put king of the Jews. And they're like, no, 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 no. Put, he said he was king of the Jews. And that little placard that went above the cross is something that um, declared the sins. They still do that in some places today when a person is executed. 
I know in China, um, they make the people walk to their place of execution with a little placard hanging around their neck that says what their crime was. And so that's what this is, is. These are this person's crimes. This is what they're dying for. And so Pilate says, King of the Jews. And I don't, he doesn't even want to crucify Jesus, but he also isn't brave enough to stand up to the people. And so they've, they want one thing, and he puts in uh, Greek, Aramaic, and uh, Hebrew, Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, uh, King of the Jews. Well, now the picture here that Paul's using is that what's on that, uh, the charge sign that goes above the place of execution is our sins. Can you see that? That Jesus uh, took those and took those to the cross so that as he's dying, he's dying for our sins. That's the picture that Paul's using. That's a powerful image here. That's a poetic picture of what Christ is doing. So that as that placard stands there, it stands there, uh, our sins, but Jesus dying for them. I think that's powerful. So he took it and he nailed it to the cross. Who's doing the Who's doing the action in this? Do you remember? It, it's a bunch of um, pronouns that point back to one antecedent, and the antecedent is God the Father. God the Father is the one that nailed our sins to Christ's cross. So he puts those over Jesus, and Jesus dies. In our place, it's the Father, and if we're so, if we're splitting hairs, uh, it's Him doing all of these things through Christ, nailing the written indebtedness to the cross, is a description of our sin being placed on Christ. And so, if you picture that written code of your sins being nailed to a tree, it portrays what Christ was accomplishing as He was nailed to the tree. Finally, here, um, Christ gives us victory over rivals. And that's in verse 15. Okay, look at what it says. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So he took away our sin, nailing it to the cross. He beat our enemy, triumphing over them by the cross. This is an interesting verse here because it talks about the enemies of God and how he's disarmed them. And at the, the forefront of this picture is the Roman triumph. Anybody know what the Roman triumph is? It's a victory parade. So the Roman army would go out and, and fight a battle, and they would usually win. And when they did, they would strip the enemy of their weapons, and they would put them all in this chariot, and they would bring all the weapons back to Rome with them. And they would, they would probably execute most of the prisoners. But some of the prisoners who had been vanquished, like the kings and people that were high officials, they would bring them back with them. And so they would march through the city of Rome. What would lead is the uh, usually Caesar or the commanding generals. And then you would have senators and, and different uh, big officials. And as you got down the line, there would be the weapons of the enemy that had been stripped away. And then near the end of that parade would be the vanquished enemy. And they would go through the seven arches of Rome, and they would come to the place where they would finally stop, and there they would execute the prisoners in a public way. And it would be a place of disgrace for the enemy. And so a triumph, 
in Rome was a parade. It was a parade that would march through and say, look, we're victorious over our enemies. And it embarrassed the enemy. It embarrassed them. And it was intended to do that very thing. And so when Paul says that Christ triumphed in the cross, he's using a very particular word that means something very specific. That Christ, in dying on the cross, brought triumph over the enemy. And I don't know if you catch the irony here, but what he's done is, the cross is an instrument of shame, isn't it? Who's usually ashamed in the in a crucifixion? The person, the pers- can I just say the person hanging on the tree? Because in our case, it wasn't a criminal, right? It's the person hanging on the tree. Why are they ashamed? They're naked for one thing, okay? What else? They're criminals, okay? They've done something wrong generally. Is there any shame in being beaten? Not beaten physically in terms of physical abuse, but overcome? Like when you're, you're overcome and you die on a cross, Rome has beaten you and there's the shame of being the loser in a power struggle. Can you see that? So here's the irony is Jesus the one is the one who died on the cross, but the enemies of God are the ones that are getting the shame. Do you see that in this passage? It's kind of amazing. I think there's something that we could dwell on here for a while. Uh, we won't, but I invite you to do that, to think about this. Who's, being, who's, who's the spectacle in this? The enemies of God, the rivals. And notice uh, it says he's disarmed them. Okay, having disarmed powers and authorities. Okay, it's it's you can't exactly nail down what this means, but we can take a really good guess because Paul uses this word for powers. It's it's arche, and it's spelled something like this. Okay, arche and authorities um, are exousia. And these words are talking about people or persons, let's just say persons, because they don't necessarily have to be hum- humans, in positions of authority, okay? positions of power. And why this is significant is uh, Paul uses this word when he talks about what, sh- what can separate us from the love of Christ. He says, can angels or arche? How does our translations deal with that? Angels or what? What's the opposite of angels? Demons. Demons. Angels or demons. So this is a, one way that this can be, this word here can be understood as demons. So when it talks about the powers, um, NIV or KJV here has principalities. It's talking about uh, those who are considered to be in a place of great spiritual power, maybe demons. Now, this isn't to endorse some kind of hierarchy of demons that says, you know, there's territorial spirits here and there. That's not what's get, being got, gotten at here. What this is dealing with is the Colossian mindset that thinks that these kinds of hierarchies still have control over their day-to-day living. And what Paul is saying is, no, Christ has triumphed over all that. They don't have power over you anymore. Aren't you glad for that? I don't know if there's territorial spirits or if there's not. But what I do know is that if there are, and I'm a believer, I'm not under that system. Aren't you glad for that? 
We're not under that system anymore. We've been liberated because he has defeated and triumphed over all of these. Okay, so uh, powers and authorities, this could be the secular authorities too. It may just be a general term for any rival to God's lordship, to Christ's lordship, okay? Whether it's spiritual or physical. Those things don't control our destiny anymore. Christ does. And I think that's really good news. I hope you do too. I hope we feel a little bit liberated tonight that we're not, we're not on, on the same plan that we used to be. All right? We've been upgraded. Someone else is watching out for our destiny. Okay? So he disarmed them. Okay? Whatever uh, these powers and authorities are, demonic or uh, political, and maybe both are in mind here. I tend to think it's spiritual is what's being dealt with here. He's disarmed them. That means, uh, and this word typically means to like strip away, and it has to do with clothing. But when it's talking here, it's talking about stripping away their weapons. Uh, stripping away weapons and hence removal of authority and power from them. That they don't have the authority they once had. And this verb is in a, a certain tense, which means that it's something which happened in the past, but it carries consequences to the present. So he stripped the enemy of those weapons, and they're still stripped. Okay? And, you know, I know the enemy still has a bark or a roar, however you'd want to say it, but his bite has been diminished. Okay? For one thing, the power of death has been removed. We can't be threatened with death anymore because death doesn't have the same meaning that it used to to us because we're in Christ and we have life. And even though we die, we will live because of him. There was a, one evangelist that I knew of that used to go on college campuses and he, he preached a pretty harsh message, but sometimes they would yell, people would yell at him, death threats. And uh, he said, oh, yeah, you can threaten me with, <laughs> with heaven because he understood what that meant. If you kill me, I know where I'm going. And so it takes the bite out of it. And there's a, there's a lot more to it than that. There's a lot that's been taken away from him. But he, he stripped, the enemy is stripped of his weapons. Okay, um, KJV says spoiled here, shook off uh, in the Weymouth translation, stripped in Young's literal translation. And so remember the triumph now. You've got the victorious leaders at the front. You've got the victorious army following behind. And then somewhere near the back, you've got the weapons that have been taken away from the enemy. That's, those are prize things. And then you have the enemy himself. So they've been, they've been separated from their weapons, and they're headed towards their doom in the triumph. And that's where the enemy's at today. Yes, he's still... Uh, tries to take people with him, but he's on his way to doom. He's already in the victory triumph of the Lord. You understand that? The enemy and the demons are already are already in the rear as captive prisoners to what Christ has accomplished, and they're on their way to doom. So he's disarmed them. And then we have... Um, He made a public spectacle. Okay, a public spectacle here means uh, to expose or to mock. Loanitis uh, dictionary says to cause someone to suffer public disgrace or shame. 
And so once again, it's ironic that it's the cross. KJV has, he made a show of them openly. NLT, he shamed them publicly. ESV, he put them to open shame. Weymouth, he boldly displayed them. RSV, NRSV, he made a public example of them. Bible for everyone, he displayed contemptuously them to public view. Okay, so here uh, he's exposed them to mockery. It caused someone to suffer public disgrace or shame. Christ is the one on display and being shamed, but as he does so, he's, um, he's victorious. And there, there's the paradox of all of this is God's wisdom is so different than man's wisdom. We, th- we look at Jesus and from the outside, and probably the disciples looked at it this way. Man, he's being put to shame. They didn't understand that he was conquering the world through that act. And in God's wisdom, it wasn't Jesus who was being put to shame there on the cross. It was the enemy. Because Jesus was going to rise up over the worst the world, the flesh, and the devil could do to him. And he's going to overcome. And so Paul is thick in irony here, but it's powerful. He triumphs over them. He exhibits them in triumph through the cross. That's uh, what triumph means, to demonstrate one successful conquest of opposition. Um, I would encourage you, don't, don't do it now because we're about ready to leave, but maybe later, Google Roman triumph, and you'll find a picture of the victory parade. And it's going, there's a picture that's out there that's in kind of a sepia color that has the, the four horses at the front, and it has the leaders, and then you go on down, you'll find a chariot full of weapons, and they're moving zigzag form through the arches uh, in Rome. And that's uh, what the triumph is all about. The REB says that he leads us as captives, or he leads them as captives in triumphal procession. Good news, leading us captives in victorious procession. He's overcome, and it's through the cross. Notice here that he forgave our sins, and he canceled the charge of indebtedness. He's taken away our sins. He did it through the cross. Victory over sin. Victory over death. Victory over the rivals. All accomplished through the cross. I wrote a summary of this passage. I'd like to read to you. When when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of flesh, God gave you life with Christ. He graciously gave forgiveness for all our sins because he had marked out because he had marked out the written record of violations of the law which stood condemning us. He took it away from us by nailing it to his cross. He also stripped the powers and authorities of weapons. He brought them to open shame in their defeat, ironically triumphing over them. By the cross. I'd like you just to notice here uh, as we, we close the action is all being accomplished by God. We, we maybe think of our victory as what do we need to do to be victorious, but um, here our victory, uh, the victory of the cross is all accomplished by God. God won the victory for you and me. Okay? And God is the subject of the verbs, He's the one who canceled our sins. He's the one that forgave all of our sins. He's the one that uh, stripped the enemy of their weapons. He's the one that purchased our forgiveness. So notice, he's the one. And the tenses with these verbs are 
are such that they have a past action followed by an ongoing consequence, okay? So I think this is really important. Sometimes we tend to be people of the moment, don't we? Like what's going on in the last 10 minutes of our life is what matters most. But what what uh, these verbs tell us, they're in the, uh, some are in an aorist tense, which means the action happens in the past, but the the uh, consequences carry on to the future. And some are in the perfect tense. And it has a similar way that they relate to us. But notice the verbs here. He made us alive. Something that happened before in the cross and resurrection. But we're still alive because of that. Right? Uh, he canceled the written code against us. It's still canceled. If you're in Christ, it's still canceled. He's not digging up our past sins and being like, you remember you did this, you were a bad boy. He's not doing that. It's been canceled. He's taken it away. It's still away. This is the scapegoat imagery here, the having removed our sins from us. The, the word that's used theologically is to expiate. It's to remove uh, in distance from us. He's taken it away, casting as far as the east is from the west. Uh, nailing it to the cross. It's still there. Leave your sins there. Don't take them off the cross and bear them again yourselves. They're there on the cross. And he disarmed the powers. They're still disarmed. He made a spectacle of them. They're still being embarrassed by the cross, still. And he triumphed over them. They're still headed towards their doom in the triumphal procession of Christ's parade. These things happen with Christ and by the cross, okay? How should we live in light of this? Five things. One, we shouldn't fear uh, a defeated foe, okay? Let's not fear. When I was a little boy, I remember hearing about uh, the activity of the demonic, and it really freaked me out. I was scared sometimes. And my mom would always say, Jesus is bigger, Luke. Jesus is bigger. All you need to do if you get into a moment where you're scared is just say, the Lord rebuke you. And uh, that was such good wisdom. And I was just a, probably a kid, six or seven years old, maybe even younger than that, thinking that's kind of scared me. But I know Jesus was on my side. And uh, there was several years ago, there was a lady that gave her heart to the Lord, and she came out of a pretty bad background. And uh, she doesn't attend here anymore. She's moved to another city now. But she called me. She said, I woke up, Pastor, I woke up, and... I felt like there was some kind of evil attack that was coming against me. I felt like something was setting on my chest. I said, next time that happens, just say the Lord rebuke you. And she didn't know anything about following Christ. Nothing. I mean, next to nothing. She just was just saved and not even out of a background where she knew the Bible. Uh, maybe a couple of days later, she called me and said, it worked. She said, I said, in Jesus' name, leave me alone. And this peace came over. I didn't tell her there was going to be a peace coming over her. I just said, do this next time that happens. And, and she did it, and Jesus did the work. And it's marvelous, isn't it, that he can, he can conquer on our behalf, and his name is more powerful. We don't need to fear the enemy, but we need to respect him. Okay? Respect that there is an enemy out there who's still fighting tooth and nail. He's fighting harder against God than sometimes we fight for God. Respect him. Don't fear him. Um. The second thing is we should have hope for uh, the future in Christ because Christ has 
given us life. He's forgiven our sins. He's defeated our enemy. The tomorrow looks brighter for us as a result. So let's have hope for the future because of what Christ has done. The third thing is we should we should not overemphasize the, a defeated enemy. Okay, so um, man, I'm telling you, there's some weird stuff out there. If you go to the Christian bookstore, and I, I know we've got a pretty good Christian bookstore here now, but you can find weird stuff on the shelves. They'll give you like a 15-step uh, way to get rid of demons in your life and all of that. And I want to tell you, if you got Jesus, that's so simple. Hold on to Jesus. He's the one who beats the foe. You don't have to go through a 15-step process of being delivered. Jesus is the deliverer. Let's trust him. And let's not overemphasize the enemy. Let's talk about him where we need to. And then let's get on to worshiping God and serving him. Okay? Uh, don't make him, the, the enemy, the focus of our Christian life. Uh, that would be a form of idolatry. Fourth, uh, we should live free from his dominion, and we can. If he's a defeated foe, we don't have to live under the dominion of the enemy anymore. Okay, what are our, what are our three foes that we face in life? Death and taxes. Five foes. <laughs> I've expanded my categories. What are the other three? They're the, the ones that are kind of most the here and now. The world. What else? The flesh. The devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world isn't like everybody's bad and everybody wants to hurt me and we need to make an enemy, but the world has a system that runs against God, right? The flesh sometimes, even redeem, we're, even though we're redeemed, sometimes the flesh wants to do its own thing. We have to say no and, and follow God's way. And then we have the devil. And the thing about it is, is that God has given us a unique capability as um, humans where we can get outside of our circumstances and be more objective. Do you know what I mean by that? Have you ever had a conversation where you've had a conversation with yourself and even maybe you've argued with yourself, whether out loud or in your mind, and you've gone over an issue and you've gone back and forth. Or maybe you've done a certain thing and you've gone back and you've stepped back from it and you've looked at it and you go, I really shouldn't have done that. But he'd done that before? Okay, so we're able to get outside of ourselves. And what I'm saying here is that God has given us the ability to say no to the enemy. We can say no to the world, the flesh, and the devil. We don't have to be under his control anymore. If Christ has really defeated the enemy, we're not under his dominion anymore. We've been brought into the kingdom of his son, and so we can serve him. Finally, we should witness to Christ's victory. Okay, if Christ is victorious over the enemy, we should be able to declare to others that they can be free too. Amen? And uh, that's the truth. All right, we've gone five minutes over, so I'm going to stop with that. Thanks for your attention tonight. Let's stand. Let's uh, say a word of thanks tonight to the Lord, and, and I want to pray for you as well. Father, I thank you that you've given victory over the enemy through the cross. We wouldn't have seen how, and certainly it took some explaining. But now that we've seen, Lord, what you were about in going to the cross, that you have defeated the enemy, and you stripped him of his weapons. You, he threw his worst at you. He killed you. And you said that wasn't enough. So now he's stripped of his weapons because you're the Lord of life, and you've overcome. 
And I pray, Jesus, that you would help us to live in such a way that we're not under the bondage of the enemy anymore. We're not fearing the enemy. We're not giving too much attention to the enemy, but we're living for you. We're living with hope. We're living uh, a life of proclaiming the freedom and victory that there is in Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that you would uh, honor that and help us, Lord, to stand up in those difficult moments when the enemy would uh, tempt or try to persuade or intimidate and uh, to, to resist. And uh, we know you give us the power to overcome. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.